Many people start their evening by asking their loved ones how their day was. I've always loved asking that to my dad. Hearing dad talk about work is especially fascinating to me, because his 9 to 5 was fairly unique. His job was keeping astronauts alive. Eventually, I decided to start recording some of his best work stories. Here are those stories as My Dad Built Spaceships. The space shuttle is arguably one of the most iconic spacecraft ever. But why does it look the way it does? What were some of the design goals that forced its design, like the small delta wings? There were lots of different goals. But it turns out one of the goals that forced some big decisions was actually a Department of Defense mission idea that Dad and I agreed sounded, I'll say, fanciful. We talked about that and a lot of other considerations that went into the design of the Space Shuttle Orbiter. Happy listening. Kind of taking things back in time a little bit, thinking about kind of the design of the shuttle and whatnot. A couple different points there that I think are particularly interesting. One, just kind of talking about the overall design and how kind of the design competition went. And I know that Rockwell, who eventually got the contract for the Orbiter, their original proposal was different from what they put out, from what they built. Two, there were military requirements that drove a lot of the design, particularly, I believe, the Delta Wing configuration. Mm-hmm. And three, kind of, you know, maybe wrapping up with talking about uh, some of the plans for the future that initially existed, like specifically a flyback booster and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And then even maybe some of the other kind of crazy ideas that, well, not crazy, it would have been interesting, but different ideas that developed over time, like the idea of creating a space station from used external tanks. Back in, I think, 1971. Good is, Lord, okay. Is when NASA put out the request for proposals. Wow, okay. And... The request for proposals was to include... Really? So so the Apollo program would have still been going at that point a little bit. The Apollo program was still going. It was already identified it was going to be shut down. Okay. It might have been 72. Still, though, I mean, yeah, that's that's only a few years after we walked on the moon. Two, three years, you know? The proposal requirements were that you have a booster, a flyback booster, and a flyback orbiter. Oh, really? So the original proposal requirement required a flyback booster. The original proposal required a flyback booster. Interesting. Rockwell bid per the proposal. I believe Boeing bid per the proposal. Lockheed bid a recoverable solid rocket booster, an expendable tank, mm-hmm. and a reusable orbiter. Mm-hmm. The program was awarded to... Lockheed, mm-hmm. and Rockwell took NASA to court saying, you've awarded the contract to, that didn't meet the to somebody that didn't meet the requirements. Right. So at that time, the program was rebid mm-hmm. or put out for bid again mm-hmm. with recoverable boosters, expendable tank, and a reusable orbiter. Mm-hmm. As Boeing and Lockmart had already spent a bunch of money on the original proposal, they decided to join as a team, and they were going to propose as a consortium. Rockwell proposed independently, Hmm. 
And it's believed the reason Rockwell won is that NASA couldn't figure out who was going to be in charge of the consortium. <laughs> they didn't you know who do you talk to, Lockheed, Boeing, or somebody else right. to get stuff resolved. Right, right. Whereas Rockwell had proposed as independent and as such they were it was very clear where the chain of command was. Right. That's so, interesting. Yeah, makes sense though. Yeah, you don't need too, too many cooks in that kitchen from the beginning, right? Yes. So Rockwell was prime for the orbiter development, and Rockwell was prime for the integration contract of the other two elements, if you will. Prime means prime contractor. Prime contractor. Person in chief, kind of. Yeah. All right. Kind of, and then the external tank and the solar rocket boosters were. I'm not sure they're bid out of Marshall Space Flight Center, but they are were certainly managed by Marshall Space Flight Center. Johnson Space Flight Center managed the orbiter design, and Johnson Space Flight Center was the uh, integrator center for space flight. And from the beginning, I, I believe that that created some challenges in that if Johnson Space Flight Center saw something that they didn't like at Marshall Space Flight Center, they had to go to headquarters to go get headquarters to direct Marshall to go do something. Where's Marshall again? Huntsville, Alabama. Alabama, right. And Johnson is in Houston. <laughs> Johnson's in Houston. Interesting. Yeah, so they were they they did too many cooks in their own kitchen. <laughs> well, they didn't ever have a single yeah. center that was truly Yeah. in charge. No executive chef. There were some other interesting things that occurred and we were Mo or Rockwell was encouraged to distribute the contracts across several entities, if you will. For example, we had relied on a place called Hamilton Standard in Windsor Locks, Connecticut for a lot of the environmental control and life support things. When it came to the toilet, when that went out for bid, the bid from Hamilton Standard and the bid from General Electric were essentially the same. But they went to General Electric because that gave them an opportunity to influence another congressman, basically. Whole space program has been politically yeah. charged from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, and that's that's not to get on a big tangent, but yeah, there's all sorts of different defense contracts and whatnot where they build things in different congressional districts so that they can spread out the political influence of their defense contract. You like bet. The F thirty five has parts built all over the place, but right, F thirty five has parts built all over the place. The New tanker that Boeing is building. Oh, yeah. Parts built all over the place. The fuselage is built in the Midwest somewhere. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure where the wings are built, whether we even build them in, on, in the United States. Of course, doing that makes it real hard for any individual congressman to come out against it, even if it is sort of wasteful spending because they're killing jobs in their own district. Correct. Playing the game. Part of playing the game. All right. So, anyway, the contract was let to Rockwell for recoverable boosters, an expendable external tank, and a reusable orbiter. And that was identified as the Phase 1 space shuttle. By the way, again, like context, when we say orbiter, we're talking about what was the black and white part of the shuttle, which was the the reusable part. When you think of the shuttle, you probably are thinking of the orbiter. So The part that came back and landed on the ground (laughs) is called an orbiter. Yeah, yeah. The tail numbers were orbiter vehicle, 
099, Orbiter Vehicle 102, Orbiter Vehicle 103, 104, and 105. Orbiter Vehicle 101 was Enterprise Approach and Landing Vehicle. There had been discussions on and off about going to a flyback booster. There in the mid-90s, it looked like it would have some real hope of going to a flyback booster, but um, it didn't come to pass because they wanted to go spend all the money that NASA had for International Space Station. Right. And International Space Station did drive a lot of modifications to the orbiters. Huh. And initially, they had an internal airlock, which was in the mid-deck, to be able to dock with Space Station. There were several different configurations looked at. The one that was desirable to many on the basis of weight is to have the arm capture the space station and pull the shuttle up to it because then they could use a mating adapter and they could leave the mating adapter on station forever. Uh They found that that capturing things and trying to put it into the cargo bay, which is essentially what you'd have to do, was a little bit more challenging for the astronauts than they anticipated. When they discovered the long duration exposure facility recovery that was done after the Challenger accident, there was a great deal of difficulty getting three of four of the latches to show ready for latch by just using the arm to stuff it in. What thermal makes things change shape a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it changed shape enough to where they could show three ready to latch, but they couldn't get the fourth one to show ready to latch without some just sitting there getting thermally acclimated. And long duration. Yeah, when we say thermally acclimated, you're basically talking one of the latches needed to cool down, right? The long duration exposure facility was about 50 feet long and it was just set on orbit to. See what happens to things like paint and solar rays and overall long long exposure time. The original plan was to have it up for 18 months and then recover it. Well, we had a shuttle accident in the middle of that, so it ended up being up there for like 30 months. It went to a place of happiness relative to it, the thermal environment it was in. Mm-hmm. That place of happiness in terms of thermal environment was a different shape than when it was in the cargo bay. Okay. They twisted a bit. So then you put it in the cargo bay and you got you kind of waited for it to get back to the shape that it was in in the cargo bay. Wow. That's pretty wild. Things expand and contract. And it wasn't a significant change when you look at it, but it was enough to where you couldn't get all four ready to lashes. So they just held it there with the arm until it got thermally acclimated and came back into shape. That's pretty wild. That was an approach that that was desired for mating to the space station until they had this incident. And then they said, "Eh, we don't want to wait a day or two to be able to transfer crew. Right. So they moved the airlock out to the cargo bay and put a docking adapter on top of the cargo bay. Of course, that was also the time that there was a political change where 
Mr. Clinton came on board okay. and said we were going to cooperate with Russians. Right. So we had a Russian document gapper on top of it. So, so interesting. Then when did, you know, I think of ISS International Space Station, I think of the 90s mostly. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I guess design and development and everything, that must have started significantly earlier on International Space Station, huh? Well, Ronald Reagan wanted a space station freedom, and that kicked off a design effort. So that was pretty much the predecessor, more or less, at least on paper? That was the predecessor concept on paper. Mr. Clinton got elected, and he said he wanted the Russians to participate, and that kind of threw a lot of those designs into the trash can because space station freedom was going to be rotating near the equator. The Russian launch facility is significantly higher than the equator, and that puts you in a different thermal environment while you're on orbit. You may remember Griffin, when he came on board and he wanted to shoot from Mars and he wanted a retired space station, and he was asked why he didn't use space station as a kickoff point, and he said it was in the wrong dang orbit. Well, it's not a equatorial-like orbit. It is a orbit that passes over some high elevations in high latitudes. Latitudes. Right. In Russia because the Russian launch facility is at a high latitude. Interesting. So a more equatorial orbit would be better as a launch pad for missions beyond Earth orbit. True, because the solar system is planar. Uh-huh. Okay. If you can be in the same plane, yeah, you don't waste fuel getting back into the plane. Except for what Uranus, I think, is uh, tilted, but still, that's we're not, we're not going to Uranus anytime soon. Uranus' orbit is tilted, yes, but the vast majority of the solar system is in a plane. You'd like to be in that plane. I'm going to refrain from making any Uranus jokes right now. <laughs> Flyback booster would have been a cool thing. There was some folks at NASA that were excited about a flyback booster at one time. The flyback booster had a lot of technical advantages because you could use, you could get away from the solid rocket boosters. You could go to a throttleable booster. Right. And you could recover the external tank equivalent. All of the flyback booster designs were all pure liquid rockets, right? All the concepts were liquid rockets, yes. I don't think anyone's done a hybrid rocket design until Skilled Composites did it with uh, Spaceship One, right? Or at least... The hybrids have always been a paper rocket. Yeah, okay. but Well, they did it, but... Yeah. Yeah, I think DARPA's done some testing with with uh, hybrid rockets, and that, that does give you throttle, throttle capability. Right. Okay, yeah, so... I mean, but I'm sure the like the original designs from Rockwell and Boeing. You said those both had flyback boosters, right? Mm-hmm. And again, those were both like completely manned systems that someone would be on a stick flying it back, like immediately yes. after launch. The '90s design that was gaining steam, as you say, I bet that was probably there were. I'm sure there were differences between the design then. Oh yeah, uh, the flyback booster. One concept actually had two SRBs tied together with a wing. Huh. Where you then utilize those two SRBs and you flew them back, and uh, I'm not sure where the wheels would be stowed. You're replacing the existing ET design, the external tank design. And by the way, SRBs are solid rocket boosters. Those are the white parts on the sides that would, you know, launch with the with the full shuttle stack at launch. 
Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, th- this concept would replace the external tank design with a, an, an, another external tank, but with one that had wings and could fly back with mm-hmm. the SRBs attached and and whatnot. Yeah, that's kind of clever. That seems actually the simplest approach. You know, the only thing, the only downside there is you would have to you're committing to keeping the SRBs attached the entire ride up that you're using the external tank. So you're going to need to just carry more fuel in your external tank to have the same mission capability and burn longer that you would have with by dropping the SRBs earlier. True. But that's not too big of a trade-off. And that time they were also looking at utilizing um, slush hydrogen rather than liquid hydrogen. Mm. Slush hydrogen you can put more in the same volume. And slush hydrogen, that means like supercooled. Supercooled, which Almost. is what... SpaceX is using uh, Elon it. Musk is looking to use for their commercial crew vehicle is to put in slush hydrogen. I thought uh, Falcon 9 was already using like super cold stuff. I don't have that answer. Okay. The the new rocket that they're building, NASA has identified a requirement that they serve seven successful flights of their new rocket before they put crew on board. And part of that has to do with their concerns about the super cooled propellants which new rocket the the really huge one that spacex is building currently they're flying a falcon 9 yeah they're supposed to have one that has a single engine it's supposed to be a falcon mark 2 or something of that nature Mm, okay i'm unaware of that i like last i heard they were just like they've been doing continual upgrades on falcon 9 so they're at falcon 9 like block 5 or whatever at this point but last i heard they were pretty committed with the engine design that they have now and the evidence of that is the fact that they're going to use basically that same engine design on their really really big rocket they're just going to put what 27 engines or something absurd on it you know not absurd but whatever i don't follow spacex yeah yeah i get you now during the ascent you are committed on the space shuttle to ride out the solid rocket boosters. Right, yeah. That's the disadvantage of solid rockets. Once you light them, you can't throttle them. You can't turn them off. They are going. They are going, and if you attempted to jettison them... Yeah, then you don't know what's going to happen. They will overcome. or They will actually speed up and go faster than you are, so you are then putting yourself in the SRB plume. (laughs) There was at one time a fast set software which would allow the orbiter to be disconnected from the external tank and hence the SRBs during ascent in an attempt to get the orbiter out. That software was never implemented because of the concern of the solid rocket boosters moving past the orbiter and creating other issues such as completely fogging the window so you can't see. I mean, to me, that seems like uh, one of the low-concern possibilities of being in the rocket plume of an SRB, a fogged window. Maybe I could handle that, but, I mean, it seems like there could be a whole lot worse there, especially if you are maintaining the ET attached when the SRB is separated. Yeah. Well, fog, in terms of enough particles to where it it, it makes it like, like glass a- you used to see on, on showers. Yeah. Okay, Another but, but feature- my point is, like, yeah, I think... Uh, the rocket plume is a whole bunch of fire. <laughs> it's a whole bunch of fire. That's great. I guess the, the the orbiter is made to withstand significant heat and whatnot, so I guess the fire could be maybe not that bad. But again, like 
if you do have the external tank attached. It's ugly. Yeah. That's, I mean, you're talking, that's, that's fundamentally, basically, you, that's what happened with Challenger. Yeah, and one of the interesting things that came out of Challenger is that it was thought that if you broke the external tank and all the oxygen and hydrogen was liberated, uh-huh. it would immediately ignite, uh-huh. and it did not. Uh-huh. It made a big gas cloud. Uh-huh. But uh, Challenger was a sad story. Yeah, topic for another day. We have lost two space shuttle orbiters. Both of them were results of either SRB or external tank technical issues that, in my personal opinion, were mismanaged out of Marshall Space Flight Center. Yeah. They were so focused on rocket performance that they overlooked some safety concerns. Yeah. Which is kind of where we are in this program right now. (laughs) Our performance margin for our our crew of four flight is like 12 pounds right now. Holy cow. (laughs) I would be just shaking in my boots if I only had 12 pounds of launch margin. So, yeah, going back to the original design and whatnot, some of the original requirements were driven by military requirements. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. One of the things that the Department of Defense thought would be really cool mm-hmm. is to be able to have a vehicle that could launch out of California in a polar orbit, capture a oh yeah a satellite satellite, stuff it in the cargo bay, put it in the cargo bay, and then land on the next orbit. Well, because the Earth rotates as you do this polar orbit. That drove a need for cross-range capability. Oh, wow. And the Department of Defense wanted to have a 2,000-mile cross-range capability. Okay, so you're so you're going up in orbit, and you're going around the Earth one time, which takes, what, 40 minutes, right? 90. 90 minutes. And within that 90 minutes, they have this great ambition of, you know, matching... Of capturing... The, cap- yeah. Matching the Well, velocity. I mean, yeah, let's break that down. Yeah, exactly. Matching, matching the velocity. The, matching the velocity of the satellite. Of, of, I'm, and clearly, they're talking about... Probably somebody else's satellite. <laughs> that was somebody else's satellite. Yeah, yeah. So, Cap- so they matching wanted- the velocity, capturing it, putting it in the cargo bay, somehow tying it down, and <laughs> then bringing it back down to Earth. Within 90 minutes. Within 90 minutes. That is a cool idea. <laughs> like, you couldn't do that with two airplanes, man. But anyway, all right. So that's their dream. And, and that became one of the requirements is this 2,000-mile cross-range. Right. 2,000-mile cross-range drove a need for a peculiar configuration. Well, and again, yeah, 2,000-mile cross-range, what's happening is you're, you're going up into orbit and you're doing all this, you know, shenanigans to try to catch this satellite, which is never going to happen in 90 minutes, but okay. And basically, yeah, the issue is the Earth is rotating beneath you while you're doing this. Right. So, like, when the cross-range is you're, you're doing re-entry, and, oh boy, the landing, you know, facility that you have is 2,000 miles away. Because the Earth rotated underneath you while you were on orbit. So now, basically, as you're doing re-entry, you need to be flying for 2,000 miles to land where you want to land. Correct. It seems like this could have been fixed by launching on the East Coast and landing on the West. <laughs> launching on the East Coast in a polar orbit says you fly over highly populated areas like New York. Dropping an SRB in New York City would probably not go well. 
<laughs> there, there was significant limitation, or there still are significant limitations as to your trajectory leaving Kennedy Space Center. Right. Yeah, you're basically you're going out over the Atlantic. You're going out over the Atlantic, and you're going out such that you don't cross any major U.S. landmass. And that says the inclination angle, the angle between the equator and the angle at which you start your orbit mm-hmm. is a maximum of 57 degrees. Mm-hmm. They, at one time, launched something out of Kennedy Space Center due south and ended up with a piece of expendable equipment hitting either one of the islands in the Caribbean or something in South America Oops. back in the 60s. And hence, they closed off the lower section of the angle, mm-hmm. such that you would go around. You would not fly over Puerto Rico or yeah. Bahamas. I don't recall what that incident was. I read about it once. It happened in the early '60s while I was in grammar school. <laughs> yeah, so that must have been Mercury or Gemini or something. But wouldn't have been Mercury or Gemini because those all those went due east. So prior to Mercury. It had to be either prior to that or one of the test rockets that yeah. they were developing. Interesting. So so a 2,000 mile cross range we need so that we can maintain this fantasy of right. taking an enemy satellite out of space within a single orbit. Cool. Now, there was an alternate design configuration. The orbiter comes in with a very high velocity. It's roughly 17,000 miles per hour. When it hits the atmosphere at that speed, it heats up the air around it. Hang on a second. 17,000 miles an hour. That's fast. That's fast. How fast is it? Let's uh, let's put this in some other terms. Just a second. 17,000 in miles per second. <laughs> 4.72 repeating miles per second. So, so I've run a 5K before. That's 3.2 miles. It takes me like 40 minutes to run those. You know, you could, other people can run it a lot faster, but I'm no Olympian. But yeah, 35, 40 minutes for me to run 3.2 miles. This is doing that plus an extra mile and a half every second. Every second. Probably, I think the average commute of an American citizen is like 20, 25 miles. So it could do your average commute in four or five seconds. Yeah. If you got a vehicle, it could do it. Yeah. When it comes in to the atmosphere, it hits the air. That causes significant heat just due to friction. Okay. But basically what I'm trying to drive at is how much heat is there created at launch? I guess like... Heat during launch is less of an issue because the atmosphere is thickest down at the ground and you're going faster and faster as you're going higher where the atmosphere is getting thinner and thinner. To your advantage, you're getting faster as it's getting thinner, as the air is getting thinner. That is correct. But there is significant aerothermal heating that occurs on the way up. On the way up. Interesting. Yeah, we kind of would never, I don't remember ever discussing that with you, but it's because. <laughs> That issue is solved if you've already solved the re-entry issue. You know? If you've solved the re-entry issue, you've solved that one for the most part. Yeah. And also the protecting yourself from the radiant heat energy from your rocket engines. 
is oh. also of concern. Man, I never thought about that either. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm always, you, you think about, I think about the rocket plume being, well, that's where the heat is, but the rocket burning is going to have substantial heat it's itself. A, it's got radiant heat coming back towards the vehicle. How much radiant heat from an SRB, roughly, do you know? Like, give me give me a ballpark. I don't have an answer for that at all. What do you think? Like, you know, three, four, five hundred degrees Fahrenheit? The driver for the orbiter yeah. wasn't so much the SRB as the space shuttle made engines. Mm-hmm. And that drove black tile on the back of the vehicle. With a capability of 900 degrees. <laughs> those tiles are cool. We're going to talk about those tiles another time. But, yeah, that makes sense. So the radiant heat is an issue, but less of an issue than, than the rocket motors that are closer to the orbiter, yes. which is, yeah, just, just just the front end of the rocket motors is creating 900 degrees Fahrenheit of heat. Creating radiant heat to get up to potentially 900 degrees on the backside of the vehicle. Twice as hot as the hottest oven you've been around. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Okay. That was a fun tangent. That was interesting for me. I learned something new. But re-entry. We're going 17,000 miles an hour. We hit the atmosphere. The atmosphere is thick. It's dense compared to, you know, the virtual vacuum of orbital space. And it starts slowing us down in a big hurry. And it does so by creating heat in the most part. It does so by creating heat. On Apollo, there was a... Ablative. Ablative heat shield on the bottom of it. Which is a fancy word for meaning it burned up. Yeah, it burned up. One of the concepts that was looked at by Johnson Space Center was to go utilize a more traditional aircraft design with long wings to increase the surface area to which you impacted the the atmosphere, hence slowing you down faster and not getting quite as much aerothermal heating. Mm-hmm. But that particular concept wouldn't meet the cross range because mm. it would come in at a st- flat stall mm. until you got down to where you were at a speed to where you could tip it over and actually fly. So, yeah, it would it would fundamentally slow down too fast, and you didn't have enough because again, we're we're ta- at this point, all the designs are coming in reentry unpowered. It's not like anyone right. any nobody was talking about refiring the rocket motors to get the cross range. With an external tank, you lost all your fuel. You didn't have any internal fuel? You have internal fuel for what we call orbiter maneuvering maneuvering system and reaction control jets. Right. The orbiter maneuvering system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was to go circulate the orbit. It didn't have a whole lot of horsepower. Baby rockets. Well, no, no. Yeah, the the Ohm's pods were were not super baby, but still they're not. They're okay. Anyway, yeah. Orbital maneuvering, not going to cut the job for getting you 2,000 miles in some direction. The orbital maneuvering rockets were adequate to slow you down to fall out of orbit, but they were not sized to bring you down from 17,000 mile per hour to zero. Right. And I guess you could do that. You could potentially take enough fuel to slow you back down, but now you've got a huge rocket. I mean, it's just... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, that's what the... Falcon 9 does, but yeah, that's that's, that's what story. the Falcon 9 does with their boosters. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. They don't achieve 17,000 mile per hour. That's a good point. Yeah, I'm not sure how fast that's, that first stage goes. And they are still utilizing some aerothermal braking, for sure. Braking, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, anyway, yeah. 
So we need to, <laughs> we're back, we need to go fly 2,000 miles once we've retrieved this, you know, let's be honest, Soviet satellite. That's what, that's what drove it, you know? That was a fantasy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> cool. <laughs> we need to go, yeah, 2,000 miles to get back home with it. And we can't do a more traditional airplane configuration with bigger wings because that's going to slow us down too fast and we're not going to be able to glide the 2,000 miles to get home. Right. So we've got to go with this delta wing configuration, which is going to come in really fast, but it's going to give us a little bit of control so that we can go fly for 2,000 freaking miles with the Soviet satellite in the back. <laughs> the 2,000-mile cross range was never demonstrated, by the way. I saw, I, oh, what, really? I, yeah. I, I think the max we ever did was about 400. Yeah. This seems like something out of a comic book, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Looking backwards, it looks pretty comical. The, the Department of Defense was supposed to, to help fund the NASA development of this device, and the Department of Defense was going to use it. And the whole theory at the time was we would have the space shuttle available for all the Department of Defense, NASA, and commercial launches. Oh, commercial too. Yeah, we were going to, we were going to be able to significantly reduce the cost per pound mm-hmm. to get to orbit. Didn't quite turn out that way. Yeah, no, yeah, too many cooks in that kitchen. A recurring theme throughout the whole shuttle program. But it reminds me of that movie Pentagon Wars, where they were talking about the Bradley, the, the typical defense <clears throat> procurement, like trying to do all things and and getting really dumb, but. It is very much like that Pentagon Wars Bradley. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a national treasure. I guess it still is uh, in terms of the orbiters are treated as if they're a national treasure. And it had a design requirements philosophy that was driven to reduce total cost. Mm-hmm. But some of those things to reduce total cost took a lot of front-end money, and front-end money wasn't always there. Yeah, I imagine the Department of Defense was like, no, we needed to do this awesome thing. You guys pay for it. Yeah. And it did have some interesting capabilities. And we managed to get the Hubble Space Telescope up to 400 nautical miles, which is above the, the altitude I thought we could achieve. Our nominal altitude was 200 nautical miles. Mm-hmm. ISS is just over 200 nautical miles high. Mm-hmm. The whole premise and concept when you started out is this was going to be a truck. Yeah, yeah. To take things to space, you assemble things in space, and then you go from low Earth orbit to investigate other planets or, or whatever. Right. As time progressed, more debris was showing up on orbit, and the utilization of spacewalks becomes more hazardous because one piece of debris will pretty much take out an astronaut yeah, or take out a spacewalker. There's some capability for the suit to repressurize. You got for a specific cell hole size, you've got about 30 minutes to get back to the airlock and get repressurized. And that assumes that all you've done is punch the suit and not hit the body inside. And that's part of why it has a, what we call a hard upper torso. Is a hard upper torso was intended to protect huh. the the to protect the astronaut from debris. Yeah, interesting. Okay, but yeah. So the point being, the the idea of building a space truck was to reduce the 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 ongoing amount the ongoing of debris com- accumulation, or to the, be able the, to the, as you got the space truck operational, the on orbit debris had increased 
situation where there was more risk. So there is a desire within NASA to reduce any spacewalker time as much as possible. So, so we're many- starting to get to where we have things that join autonomously rather than having somebody go out there and tighten bolts. Uh-huh. Okay. Or connectors or, yeah, or yeah. hoses. Yes, it is a risk. It's a risk that gets higher all the time, especially when folks like China want to try out their satellite interceptors and leave a bunch of debris on orbit. Or when a, yeah, I think yeah, it was a Russian satellite that accidentally ran into something else on orbit. Oh, cool. Yeah, the Chinese yeah satellite interceptor. They they launched a missile out of one of their own old satellites just to prove that they could really and kind of standard international military dick waving. Yep. Yep. That happens all the time and on Earth, but space. It's kind of keep it up. To... We're going to make it space travel more and more hazardous. Yeah. Because there's just too much crap up there. Yeah, a bunch of. Yep. Yeah, and yeah. What is the crap? Well, you think of. You know, every Apollo mission dumped a big ring from between um, stages. Between stages, there's a ring. There's every every satellite that doesn't doesn't operate anymore is effectively space trash. You know, until it falls out of orbit. Space trash until it falls out of orbit. It took Skylab forever to fall out of orbit, Mm -hmm. which was before your time. But yeah, the Apollo program had a on a single module on orbit space station that they visited for a while mm-hmm. and one of the hopes was that the space shuttle would capture that and bring it back home and reuse it well bring it back home yeah that thing was huge the thing was bigger than the than it wasn't it that pretty sure i went into a mock-up of that at the air and space museum in dc and that would not have fit in the orbiter okay. cargo bay. It was longer than 60 feet? It's not longer. It was wider. wider. It was wide like a Saturn V rocket. Okay. There was fantasies about utilizing it with a space shuttle. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. That I can that I can understand. That didn't occur because it fell out of the sky before the space shuttle launched the first time. Right. First time we launched it, we had a white external tank. Right. It was painted. Yes. Then they realized that if they don't paint it, that you can save about 1,500 pounds of paint weight. So they stopped painting it after the first one. And that's why they were orange. That was the That was a natural color of the foam insulation, which is very much like that spray-on foam insulation that you can buy for your house. Oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't realize that's kind of what it was. Is that how they applied it to the external tank, was spraying it on? My understanding, it was sprayed on the external tank. Interesting. I went to Marshall Space Flight Center one time to try to talk to the International Space Station designers about having some commonality in hardware between International Space Station and shuttle hardware so that they wouldn't have to redevelop hardware. They had all focused on redeveloping the hardware. There wasn't any benefit in really talking to them. It was a waste of money. Was, they were going to do things their way. They are going to do things their way. ISS has had... They did some design trades that resulted in some interesting design solutions. One of them is that they have 120 volt DC available from solar arrays. Well, 120 volt DC isn't used anywhere in any industry in the United States or otherwise. So anything that had to use that 120 that power from ISS 
either had to be completely redesigned to take on 120 volt DC power, or they had to build in the, in the, the power filtering section of whatever it is they're using, something that would reduce that voltage down to what they are accustomed to designing. Avionics, for the most part, they end up putting a device to stop and start the current, a transformer, and another device to flatten the current on the other side of the transformer so it would get back to DC power. Huh. You'd use a, a power chopper up front so that you could run a transformer because the transformer need, needed to have a, a changing magnetic field to work. And then after you came out of the transformer, you then had to make that power that has been generated from the transformer, which is AC, back DC, so you end up rectifying it. Huh. Another thing that was done is the the NASA significantly participated in development of what's called brushless direct current motors. Uh And what that does is they fundamentally take the commutator out of the motor and put it into electronics and use something called offsets to turn on and off the power going to the coils. So... Yeah, we have the, and going back also, 2,000 mile cross range, that was a really big military requirement. Another big military requirement was a 65,000 pound payload. Had it been just a NASA vehicle without any Department of Defense requirements, well, definitely wouldn't have had a 2,000 mile cross range, but wouldn't have had the 65,000 pound payload, would have had a 30,000 payload, which would have resulted in a smaller vehicle. If you didn't have the 2,000 mile cross range, what sort of vehicle configuration, like you think it would still have ended up as a space plane? It would still end up as a space plane, but it wouldn't have different wings. Right. The wings would, the wing plan form, i.e. looking down at the airplane, mm-hmm. would probably look more like a F-16. I was going to say like an F-104 Starfighter with those little tiny little baby wings, but yeah, an F-16, okay. An F-16. Mm-hmm. You, if you're going to put the wings on, you want them to be as far out there as you can to maximize the surface area. There's a surface area effect on the aero heating. If you got more surface area, you get less total heat. Mm-hmm. And the the other part of it is that you end up slowing down faster because you're you're projecting more surface area. Both of those were a good thing in, in the eyes of Johnson Space Center. Yeah. In the eyes of Department of Defense, that was a bad thing because you lost cross range. So what's the what was the G load on the on re-entry with the orbiter configuration that actually happened. What was what was the actual G-load on re-entry? G-load on re-entry was on the order of two and a half Gs. So that's what the... G-load on ascent was limited to three Gs. We, oh, really? You may have recalled that they talked about throttle back on the main engines during the last right, right. 40 seconds. That was to preclude the G-load from going above the three Gs. What would the G-load have been if they did not throttle back? I haven't a clue. Hmm, interesting. But that, yeah, that's interesting too. If it had the different configuration, more like an F-16, and it would have slowed down faster, that would have increased the G-load on re-entry. Yeah. That's and interesting. G-load on re-entry was not nearly as high as the G-load of asset. Well, if we're talking two and a half to three, that's pretty close. I mean... Nah. Okay. But still, I mean... We're supposed to get them up to six Gs in commercial crew. <laughs> on re-entry? No, on asset. Oh, wow. Well, we're putting the... Okay, the G-load on the individual is a function of how it, the individual is configured. 
if you're laying against the wall and G load is pushing you against the wall, yeah, your body can take a pretty significant G load. Yeah. If you're sitting in a chair and the G load is through your head to the floor, yeah, somewhere around three G's, the vast majority of people start losing consciousness. Huh. Fighter pilots can do six G's, six to nine G's with a what's called a G suit. Mm, yeah, the G okay. suit pressurizes the legs to bring blood back up to their head. And of course, the Russians configure their fighters to go to twelve G's for momentary bursts. And then they gotta better have a good G suit. <laughs> yeah. Maybe their testicles get squeezed <laughs> to keep the blood up at the head, or you go night night. Yeah, you go night night. That's fine. Yes. The other part of sort of future designs that well, okay, so the original. The, the concept of the space shuttle from the beginning was to be a space truck, was to ferry yeah. stuff into orbit and then basically create, you know, Earth orbit to be a launch pad to go out and kind of do more interesting things, you know? Correct. So what was some of the, the, the original concept? I think the at the time that they were proposing space shuttle, they were hoping that the next phase would be like a lunar base, right? Uh, yeah, the next phase would be a lunar base. And then from there, you actually have a pretty good platform to do longer duration missions to Mars or other parts of the solar yeah. system. Right. You have a microgravity environment without an atmosphere, so you can build something in a microgravity environment, and you can launch from the moon, but you don't have to worry about the atmosphere, whatever. You don't have to worry about the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And there are resources on the moon that you can use to make propellants. Right, right. The moon becomes a good base if you use the resources that are on the moon. If you transport the resources to the moon, yeah, it doesn't become a good base. Right, right, right. Needless to say... That never happened. <laughs> that never happened. What were some of the other kind of interesting future plans? Like the, the plan to... Whose plan was it, anyway, for the on-orbit station made of external tanks? Was that a, originally a NASA idea? Or was that actually... Because I think at one point, this guy named Bigelow, who was a major hotel owner, I think that he liked that plan and wanted to see it happen or something, but I don't know if he developed it. I've seen concepts of that. I don't know who developed it for sure. Interesting. We purposely made the tank tumble when it went away from the space shuttle to improve its trajectory or improve its opportunity to re-enter rapidly. They were certainly taken up there and could be utilized. And there were, I don't recall whose concept it was. It was featured in several aerospace magazines at one point. I mean, you went through the effort to get it up to the same altitude you had to orbit or two. So why not try to use it? And people threw out ideas to try to use it. Huh. And part of that came from Skylab, yeah, it was- which was before your time, was actually a rocket fuel tank uh-huh. that was reconfigured with housing stuff. Uh-huh. So... You already had them up there. What would it take to reconfigure them? That plan didn't come to any fruition at all. But it was an interesting concept. And yeah, I decided to think it's interesting to kind of talk about these different concepts. There was also a an X-plane that NASA was trying to design for a escape vehicle from International Space Station. Right. That was... It had a wing plan form very similar to the space shuttle because that way you didn't have to reinvent the aerodynamic database. But rather than land on wheels, it when it got slow enough, it would start deploying 
the biggest parachute ever. Oh, the parachutes that are parafoil. Parafoils. Yeah. And it had staged parafoils. And I think they had a total of seven stages of the parafoil. Wow. And so that yeah, that was neat. It like with the stages, basically the parafoil is a kind of parachute that you see skydivers use, right? So it's 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 kind of like a wing in a way. And it's steerable. And, and it's steerable, right. And you can kind of get it where you want it to go. And so, staging it says that you don't deploy all of it all at once. You right. deploy parts of it, and then you have pyrotechnic devices <laughs> that allow more of it to come out as you slow down. Right. So it started out at a particular width. Like it was only, you know, a fraction of its total width at the first stage. But then... As it started slowing down with just the initial width, it would gradually end up being bigger and bigger and bigger to slow down the vehicle speed more and more, and probably also give them greater degree of control. But yeah, that was that was pretty wild. Yeah, I remember they did some drop tests with that, and they demonstrated some ability of that parafoil to work, yeah. but that you know didn't come all the way to fruition of being being oh. a, an escape vehicle on the International Space Station. Well, part of what was going on there is that contractors such as Rockwell were saying that NASA was in direct competition with the contractors. The NASA charter said go develop stuff, but it did not identify that they should be the one doing, doing the manufacturing of stuff. Uh-huh. In this case, they were doing the manufacturing and the testing and development, and some of the contractors such as ATK, Rockwell, Etc. said, you're outside of your the scope of your chart. I think the other thing, too, is probably uh, I bet funding dried up in part because while it was a nifty thing, fundamentally that role can be filled by a Soyuz capsule on the International oh, Space Station. True. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Clinton. The International Space Station is a great thing. It's a great tool. It's allowed us to have the opportunity to put people up for a long duration to see what happens to them. Yep. Has had given us the opportunity to look to see whether there's genetic differences. Which there are. Which, which is apparently interesting. Apparently there are because they put a twin up and monitored him and his, his brother and found that there was some genetic changes that occurred to the individual that was up for a year. There was always concern, and there still is, relative to cosmic radiation in space. Mm-hmm. Well, the Earth, for the most part, is protected from cosmic radiation by the magnetic field around the Earth. Which does actually, I think for the most part, that also shields the International Space Station, right? It shields the International Space Station pretty well. Yeah, Earth's magnetosphere goes out very broadly. Right. When you like, go, go to the moon, that becomes a concern again. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, the Earth's magnetosphere, I think I, think I read somewhere like 60,000 miles or something. The total magnetic sphere goes out that far, but the protection area for cosmic radiation is smaller than that. Oh, yeah? Yeah. But still, a few, at least a couple hundred miles, which is where oh, the yeah. space station is. Right. But yeah, magnetic radiation is a big concern with Mars missions. Yeah. Cosmic radiation is projected to kill you <laughs> if you're on your way to Mars. That's not always true, right? Like That's true if you get hit by like basically a solar wind. That's my understanding. I don't know. My understanding is that's not always true. So, like, and, and what I've seen in, in some concepts is, like, there'll be whatever vehicle they build to go between planets would 
I've seen um, concepts where they would basically have lead-lined areas to protect you from radiation when there is like a, a, a solar storm like that. So you would go retreat yeah. and do your storm shelter and you would keep your food in the storm shelter. But the rest of the time, you would have a more a broader <laughs> habitat that doesn't have to be lead-lined. I have, to date, not participated in a long-range yeah. program, so I do not know what the mitigation is. Yeah. There was a... Every once in a while, Boeing puts out these things and says, this is a problem. You've got a clever idea to how to solve it. Yeah. And one of the things you can do is just use water. Yeah. You can put water. You got to carry a bunch of water anyway. You put water around where you are. Other things is trash. <laughs> yeah. All your food products come in plastic containers. Mm-hmm. Those plastic containers will, if you can get them in the right places, will absorb the cosmic radiation and through a, a chemical reaction. So your, your trash ends up being radiated and hence. You need to replace the trash with more stuff to, uh, over time. Wow. What are the odds that this occurs and you turn into either the Hulk or the Fantastic Four? I have no idea. <laughs> I like that answer better than uh, none. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, they know that the cosmic radiation is harmful to humans. Yeah. What is the net result of it? Those tests are not politically correct right now. Yeah. Not even on animals. Oh, something else just came to mind now that I talked about animals. This first animal that went to space was a dog. The Russians put a dog in space. And the intent was they had a feeding tube for the dog. And the last pellet in the feeding tube would was poison and would kill off the dog. The thermal control system failed. Oh, no. And the dog died of heat exposure. Well, thanks for that, Dad. That's what I want to think about. (laughs) That sucks. We used to put chimpanzees in space. Yeah. We We got them all back, and they were not happy with us when they came back. Imagine, yeah. They would fundamentally attack the keeper when they came back. So neat stuff, yeah. Um, if it wasn't for the Department of Defense, the shuttle would have been very different. Yeah. They had this wonderful fantasy of going up and capturing a Soviet satellite in one orbit and meaning 90 minutes and bringing it back down and flying it back home. I thought that was bizarre. That is not going to happen. You could, again, you could build the most, like, you could take the most docile, straight-flying, tiny little airplane flying off the coast of California mm-hmm. and have another airplane try to go and grab that within 90 minutes and land, and you couldn't get that done, you know? That'd be... whatever. What an absurd... absurd... Yeah, so flyback booster was always part of the plan. You said that in the 90s, like, that was starting to pick up steam again a little bit? Yeah, it was. What was driving it picking up steam again? Cost. Oh, Really? So they figured they might be able to bring down overall launch costs with the flyback boosters? The overall reusable cost if you bought a flyback booster because you didn't have to send those guys. Right. You didn't have to send the guys out on the ship to go capture them. Right, yeah, because it was the, with the solid rocket boosters, those were those were dropped in the Atlantic, and there were two, two, two. two ships that NASA still has 
<laughs> that uh, where yeah. they would go out and, and pick up the solid rocket boosters. Actually, I saw them come back in once, and that was pretty damn cool. I remember that there was a time where I was telling you <laughs> one of the one of the later shuttle missions. I was gonna go out. There was a bar right by the port. That's right by the um, the the space center. And I said, "Hell, I'll go and I'll watch the launch. And I'll just hang out at the bar until they come back with the booster. It'll be fun." <laughs> <laughs> like. Well, I mean, it's a nice idea, but you might be there a while. Depending on weather and storms and whatever, it might be three days before they come back. <laughs> Needless to say, I didn't stay the whole time. But I did. I happened to be at that bar at one time when they were bringing one in through the port. And that was pretty neat seeing it. The The booster was bigger than the ship. <laughs> oh, the booster is longer than the ship. Yeah. But they yeah. would they would uh, strap the booster alongside of the ship and come in through the port with it and then putt-putt their way back up to the space center. I guess at that point, what they throw it back on rail and send it back to wherever they what? Yeah. First, they get out on any remaining propellant with a um, a hose, high pressure hose, to decontaminate it. Mm-hmm. Then they break up the sections again so it can go back on a rail car and goes back to United Technologies to have the propellant put back in and re- resurface the O rings or whatever. Yeah. So when they when they ship it back over here, it comes in the pieces, and it comes it comes obviously it comes with propellant in it. It comes in pieces, comes with propellant in it, and because it's not, it's open at both ends. It can't can't ignite. Can't ignite. Yeah. So yeah, and then um, over here, they would stack it and put it all together, and then did that part did that occur? Did the stacking of the SRB segments that occurred in the um, vertical or vehicle assembly building? Yeah. Interesting. Pretty neat stuff. Did you know that Brevard County, Florida, and especially with the Space Center, it's the only place in the world that has five modes of transit all in the same area. So we have airports and international airports with the with Melbourne. We have mm-hmm. railway. We have interstate highway. Mm-hmm. We have the port, right, mm-hmm. which is four, and that's sort of standard, but we're the only place that has all those and has a spaceport. Yeah. And... The commercialization of KSC is probably going to be a good thing. Yeah. One of the challenges NASA has is they always want everything to be the best it can be. Yeah. When you do that, you drive costs. Well, you lose sight of the good in pursuit of the perfect. You lose sight of the the, the adequate design yeah. in pursuit of the perfect design. The good and the functional, yeah. yeah. And uh, the Steve Jobs would say, like, and design is good, but it doesn't count if you're not shipping. You know, the right. product's only as good as the one you ship. And, yeah. and the infrastructure in NASA and their response to the Columbia accident has only made it worse. Yeah. Because they pointed fingers at people and they removed them from places. The message they've they've given their employees is: if you don't get a design that works perfectly, you'll yeah. be reassigned. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, there's a lot to talk about with, I think, both accidents, but that's going to be another day. Hey, thanks again for listening to My Dad Built Spaceships. If you're enjoying this or you have some more information about the space shuttle design, or if you also had a family member that has been a part of our amazing space program, go to mydadbuiltspaceships.com and send a contact message. I'd love to hear from you. On the site, you can also learn more about me, my dad, the podcast, or even make a donation if you'd like. The next episode is going to talk about STS-1 and some really crappy life support systems. Thanks again, and keep pursuing your science interests. Mm-hmm.